Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 34 today. Have you ever heard of the adage, some people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? Paul would not agree. It is the mind that is fixed on heavenly hopes that enables a person to submit himself to the will of God. It is the mind that is fixed on heavenly hopes that can enjoy good things in this world without becoming a slave to them. And it is the mind that is fixed on heavenly hopes that is able to love others before himself. Our world surely needs more heavenly minded people in it. Our faith in Jesus Christ and His resurrection is bound to our own hope for our own resurrection. If you take away our future hope, then Christianity is really not worth it. We live for Christ today because we believe that we will truly live with Christ eternally. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Count of Monte Cristo. How many people have read that book or watched the movie? Okay, good number of you. That's good. If you haven't done either, you really need to. You're missing out on something that's pretty, pretty awesome book. As I uh, both watched the movie and read the book, I identified with the main character, Edmund Dante. And he, um, if you identify with his emotions at all, it will take you on a roller coaster. The book begins with Edmund living a rather favored life. He is promoted to the captain of a ship, a merchant ship. He is on the verge of being married to the woman that he loves. Edmund has many reasons to live and many reasons to be happy. But then, just before his wedding, he is betrayed by his best friend. He is falsely accused of treason and sentenced to the island prison, the Chateau de If. And initially, Edmund does okay. He believes that God will bring him justice and restore his life. But as the years go on, he loses his faith. And all that remains in his heart is his bitter hatred for those who have conspired to destroy his life. He has lost all hope that the joy that he once had could ever be a reality again in his life. Now, the writer Alexander Dumas does not take us to the resurrection, but I do believe that this story does connect, us, connect to our hope in the resurrection. It may not be through the betrayal of a friend or being sentenced to an island prison for your life, 
But each one of you, in one way or many, have felt the shattering of your dreams for this life. Most of us do not feel them to the extent that Edmund did, but we all feel them to some degree. And our trials and cares have a way of eating away at our faith in the goodness of God and our hope to experience the fullness of happiness. Now, in Edmund's heart, the only thing that he finds to live for is revenge. And I won't go into all the details of that. You'll have to to read it. It is pretty intricate. But if you have ever lived for revenge for even a short period of time, you know that revenge is not fulfilling. It is not that for which your heart truly yearns. What you truly yearned for and what his heart was yearning for was a restoration of that which is good. An experience of true love and happiness. And again, as I said, Dumas, the writer, does not lead us to the resurrection, but he does point us to a hope of a true restoration of all that the world has taken from us. It is a a positive ending of the book to some degree. But you can have happy endings in books. The harsh reality is that far too often this fallen world cannot deliver the restoration for which your hearts yearn. In fact, God never intended for it to. Now, He certainly gives His children many good gifts in this life to be received with joy and to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. But hear this, the hand of God also gives to you disappointments and trials. And how you respond to those disappointments and trials depends in large part on whether or not you are heavenly minded. You see, the person who has placed all his hopes in this life will necessarily give his heart to this life. Jesus says it very clearly, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But the person who has his hopes in Jesus, who is now in heaven, will give his heart to something more than this life. He will give his heart to the will of God. Colossians 3 says... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This struggle to be heavenly minded is a lifelong struggle. Rarely does anyone figure it out early in their lives. And even when you learn it, you have to relearn it over and over and over again. The reason for this is because it is the hand of providence that is the only teacher of this lesson. 
It is when God takes from us good hopes for this life that we can hear the whisper of God to more perfectly set our hopes in the resurrection. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, writes, This world is a stormy sea in which we are continually tossed and our condition is so uncertain or rather so full of troubles and there are in all things sudden changes. You you think it's good one moment, the next moment it's trial. And then he says, This might be apt to trouble weak minds. Now, I appreciate Calvin's assessment of the storms of this life, but I take issue with his statement that it is only apt to trouble weak minds. I think it troubles us all. Or maybe I'm just a weak mind, I don't know. It is our hope in the resurrection that assures us that God will indeed set everything in its proper order. As children of God, we look to Him to sustain us in the midst of our trials. We depend upon Him to give us daily bread. We have many reasons for which to be thankful in this fallen world. But here's the thing. We should never demand of God to give us in this present life the true restoration for which our hearts yearn. Instead, we must learn that our true purpose here in this life is to learn to submit our hearts to the sovereign will of our loving Father. The Christian life is a life of humbling ourselves, devoting ourselves to obedience to His commands, even when the storm is raging around us. And all of this only makes sense because we have a sure promise from our Father that He will indeed, in the end, freely and graciously provide all that this world and His loving hand have taken from us. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have a true hope, a sure hope. In His resurrection, we are given a hope that will reach back into our present lives and enable us to even find joy and peace as the storms continue to rage. So with that being said, let's actually read the text and walk through it today. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, why do people, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. May God bless his holy word. Verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Here's a question for you. When did your problems begin? Did they begin when you were born? Did they begin when you left your mom and dad's home? Did they begin when you got married? Or began having kids? Your problems began when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Every problem Every difficulty, every hardship that you and I face are associated with death in some way. And death began when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Physical suffering, physical aging, deterioration, the wearing out of everything that you possess, the scarcity of your resources. That means not having enough money to pay the bills this month. The difficulty of work, physical or mental. The relational struggles that you have, and you all do. I mean, it always amazes me when people say, yeah, everybody in the church has got their life together but me. And I'm like, I have heard that a thousand times from everyone in the church. What are you talking about? (laughs) Nobody has their life together. How about the emptiness in our hearts because of the absence of what we're truly yearning for in fellowship with God? Maybe it's the tragedy of the loss of loved ones. The source of every problem that you face lies at the feet of Adam. And you say, who cares? What good does it do me to know that? It doesn't change my problems. We still are in the same situation. The problems continue to hit me in the face. 
We have the same bills that are there. It doesn't do me any good to know that Adam was the one that is the culprit. I still have the same body that is aging. We still feel distant with God. We struggle to get up in the morning with joy in our hearts. And when you add all the problems in the world around us, some of which Dan prayed for, there's really sometimes this threatening despair. What good does it tell us that, that it's all Adam's fault? It matters everything. Because if you know that the source of every problem that you have ever experienced is caused or begun at Adam's feet, then it helps you to believe that each and every one of them will be fixed by the work of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll help you to finally get past the fact that you are not the source of the solution to your problems. You do not have the ability to fix your world. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to make the world a better place. Of course you should try to bring your will into the alignment of God's will and to seek to do good in this world. Of course you should do that. But the problems and the evils of this life are far bigger than us. The older that I get, the more pessimistic I, I get to our society. I don't know why that is, but that's, that's the way it happens. I mean, was it true in our grandparents' generation that there were as many scammers as there are today in our generation? Were the politicians just as selfish? Was there just as much greed? Was there a masked agenda of power and control? that we see today? I haven't dealt with this issue yet, but I'll take a few moments to deal with this. We're all confronted with the slogan, the Black Lives Matter, right? And who can argue with that slogan? Black lives do matter. But beneath that slogan is a masked agenda of power and control. It is an evil agenda that opposes the God of Scripture. Taken from the actual Black Lives Matter website, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. We disrupt it. We're against the family as you know it. One father, one mother. God is the one who established the nuclear family. To oppose the nuclear family is to oppose God. Now certainly we believe that God ministers to broken families. In some way we're all broken. But we should never leave the ideal that God has established. Read a little bit farther down on their website. We foster 
a queer-affirming network. Their words, not mine. We gather, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Now certainly, as your pastor, I would exhort you to deal with prejudices in your heart that keeps you from loving those who are homosexual and calling them to Christ. But it does not give us the option, the Bible does not give us the option of affirming homosexuality. It moves on. We cultivate an intergenerational and communal network free from ageism. You have to almost step back and say, what in the world is ageism? It is the belief that those who are older you should respect and gain wisdom from those who are older. This movement is not a God-honoring movement. The fact that so many people have been enamored with this movement is disturbing to my heart. I said that this is a movement that is masked of power and control. From another website called the Heritage website, there was a, a revealing interview in 2015 where one of the leaders of Black Lives, Lives Matters, Patrice Cullors, says this. Myself and Alicia, another leader of the movement, in particular are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. Yeah, I get a little disturbed when I hear things like that. And to think that you can't even turn on the TV, maybe we should watch less of the TV, but you can't turn on a TV or a sports program or anything without having that flashing all over the place. And I am deeply opposed to racism. The potential for economic collapse in America is definitely real. I'm not predicting economic collapse. But certainly when our government continues to print more money, it's going to devalue the money that's already here. God has prescribed that we need to work, and we need to work hard. I don't know all the solutions to these things, but it's not easy to be in this world and go, whoa, I can't do anything about that. We see the devastation of hurricanes and wildfires. And then as Dan talked about, we add to that the pandemic that we live in. And regardless of how you feel about this virus, one of the things that's most disturbing to me is that the virus has been used to polarize our society and turn us against one another. Instead of seeing the virus itself as the enemy... An uncontrollable enemy, by the way, that cannot be stopped but must be endured. We no longer see the virus as the enemy. The people who do not view the virus as we do become the enemy. Those who
those who are not mask wearers are seen as purposefully almost murdering. And those who diligently wear masks are viewed as promoting the control of society by the government. I thought these things might pass over, but it doesn't seem like they are. They don't show much signs of slowing. There is an increasing disdain for the church. Churches are less full than they were before the coronavirus. And that's including those who are watching services online. It's almost like 25% have just dropped out completely. If you love your country or support the police, you're viewed as racist. There's, I mean, the problems just continue on and on. It is so easy to think that this world is spiraling out of control. And when you add to that your own personal problems, it can lead you to despair. And I'm telling you, you cannot look to yourself. You can't even look to your government. You can't look to others to fix these problems. Your problems are bigger than that. They go deeper than that. I have these trees in, next to my driveway. I, I don't know if they're mimosa trees or not, but, but they, they might be. Uh, they grow like weeds. I mean, these things grow so fast. I want to get rid of them. I don't like them. I had one in my backyard on the hill, and, I, and it was very small. And, and the root system was bigger than the plant, I think. And I remember with a, with a mattock and a, and a shovel and all this stuff trying to cut out the root system of that thing. I think I had like three injuries that I still have to this day. And I did this like 10 years ago. Um, and I had this like crater that I had to fill up in order to get this thing out of. That's what it's like. I can't imagine the trees that are next to my, to my uh, driveway are like 10 times bigger than the one I got out of my backyard I'm, I'm not even going to try to get rid of those unless I have this, like, backhoe or something. There's no way to get them out. Someone will give me a solution to that. Luckadoo's probably thinking of the solution right now. So, uh, <clears throat> But there has been one man, one man, who has solved all these problems. For by a man has come the resurrection from the dead. His one act has dealt a death blow to every enemy that has ever or will ever stand against him. That is good news. The resurrection is not just something that you look to at the end of your lives. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is an act that whereby God takes all of the effects of Adam's sin and he begins the reversal of them. And I would encourage you, maybe when you go home, take your, your bulletin and look at that first hymn that we sang because it lays all this out so clearly. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If the effects of Adam's sin and rebellion are universally felt, 
so are the effects of Christ's obedience and victory. Now, of course, not every child of Adam is a child of Christ. This promise is for those who believe in Christ. The fact of the matter is this. There is no enemy that stands against you that will be able to stand. The world is not spiraling out of control. At this very moment, Jesus is reigning. At this very moment, Jesus is putting every enemy under his feet. Now you cannot accept this by your mere eyes. If you look at all of the problems that I just tried to catalog and we could have been here all day talking about them, it doesn't look like it. But if you believe the word of Scripture, it tells you that all of them are being put under His feet as we speak. The last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26, is death. Last week, or two weeks ago, I said that that Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of believers are joined together by an unbreakable cable. That they're truly one event. But here we see that the resurrection of believers is also joined to the universal reign of Christ. When He rises from the dead, it is the guarantee of a complete and perfect kingdom. That belongs to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, Jesus doesn't give to his Father a kingdom that is messed up. I mean, that's what happens in our, you know, when we uh, switch from one president to the next one. It's like, um, you know, during the campaign, they tell you that they're going to fix all the problems. But always, the problems of one president are just handed down to the next president. Well, Jesus is not going to give a problematic, tumultuous kingdom to his father. He's going to give a perfectly harmonious kingdom to his father. So what is he doing? He's in the process right now of destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Well, how is that possible when I talk about all the problems that I just said? In what way, what are these rules and authorities and powers that he is putting under his feet? I'm going to give you four possibilities, and I think all of these are included. Generally speaking, these are every enemy that opposes his rule. Any force that in any way opposes Christ's rule are these here. It means the spiritual forces of evil, as Dan talked about in Ephesians 6. Every demon will be put under his feet. But it also will include the entire world of unbelievers and their rebellious ideas. Every idea that sets itself up against Christ and his rule will be put under his feet. 
It also includes the remaining effects of the sinful heart that lies in his own children. That's why we had in the confession, the, the catechism, that he is exercising his kingship by subduing you 